The morning of June 28, 1914, saw the Bosnian capital of Sarajevo in an enthusiastic uproar. A subject of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, its Archduke, Franz Ferdinand, and his wife, the Archduchess Sophia, would be paying the city a visit that day to inspect their military forces stationed in the region. Shortly before 10 a.m., the couple's train arrived at the station to great fanfare. What followed was a motorcade in which the public gathered along the route to see and welcome the visitors. But among the throng were six individuals with more nefarious intentions, each of whom belonged to a notorious Bosnian nationalist organization known as Young Bosnia. Among the six was an unassuming 18-year-old Bosnian Serb named Gavril Princip, who waited in an alley for his chance to strike. first attempt at taking the couple out had failed, thanks to one of the conspirators, Mohamed Mehmed Basic, having lost his nerve. Stepping forward, Nedeliko Chabrinovic hurled a grenade at the Archduke's car, only to have it ricochet off the rear bumper and land under the fourth car in line. When it detonated, two of the passengers were injured, and Chabrinovic was quickly detained. Still, the motorcade pressed on, more or less unfazed, albeit driving a bit faster than they had before, and proceeded on to the next stop, the Sarajevo Town Hall, where Ferdinand was set to deliver a speech. With that out of the way now, the Archduke and his wife set out for the hospital where the injured victims were being treated. En route, the car stalled, and the brakes locked in front of a delicatessen, the very same place where Princip himself was stationed. Seizing his chance, he broke out through the crowd, withdrawing a browning semi-automatic pistol from within his coat, and fired twice into the car, clipping Ferdinand in the neck and Sofia in the stomach. Both died shortly thereafter, and Princip had been taken into custody by local authorities. There have been several political assassinations throughout history, but few have led to full-scale conflicts, one exception being the event I've just described. Following the end of the Franco-Prussian War in 1878, Europe entered a period of peace, albeit one whose foundations were anything but stable. Behind the scenes, political tensions flared between governments, and by the summer of 1914, said tensions had reached a fever pitch. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, therefore, was merely the physical embodiment of them boiling over at last. Still, the questions remain. Who was Gavrilo Princip? How did he become radicalized? And what became of him after his crime? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Today, Gavrilo Princip is remembered as being one of the most notorious figures of 20th century history, but his origins are decidedly humble, the humblest, in fact. Born in 1894 in Oblii, a remote and rural region of Bosnia and Herzegovina in the northwestern part of the country, not far from the town of Bosansko Grahovo, he was the second of nine children, six of whom died in infancy. From the outset, young Gavrilo was a frail, even sickly child, whose chances at surviving into adulthood seemed slim to none. His mother, Maria, wanted to name him Spiro, after her late brother, but at the insistence of a local priest, he was instead christened in the Eastern Orthodox faith with the name of Gavrilo, after the archangel Gabriel, which, it was felt, would increase the boy's chances of survival. The Princip family had lived in this remote part of Bosnia and Herzegovina since at least the early 18th century, when they relocated from their ancestral homeland of Montenegro, specifically the municipality of Nikšić, to Oblii and their adoptive country. Once there, they worked the land as Kmetovi, a class of Christian peasants who served as serfs, suffering discrimination and oppression at the hands of their Ottoman Muslim landlords. Gavrilo's parents, Marian Petar, had also been born into the Kmetovi class, toiling away in their overseer's fields while simultaneously maintaining their own humble patch of land. 
In addition, Petard lived by a code of what he referred to as, quote, strict correctedness, unquote, refusing to drink or even curse, much to the amusement and ridicule of his neighbors. But despite these first impressions, it would appear that a rebellious streak and thirst for justice were traits that ran in the family. Petar himself had fought in the Herzegovina uprising of 1875 on the side of the Serbian Christians against the Ottoman Empire. After the revolt, however, he returned to Oblii, where he was forced to relinquish a third of his income to his landlord. To make ends meet, he transported passengers and mail across the mountains that separate northwestern Bosnia and Herzegovina with the Dalmatia region of Croatia. It was a rough-and-tumble existence, but somehow the family survived. By the time young Gavrilo was nine, he was ready to begin primary school. Though Petar initially objected, for he needed a shepherd to look after his sheep, he soon acquiesced, and thus the child was enrolled at the nearest school. He struggled his first year, but after that excelled in his studies, for which he was awarded a volume of Serbian epic poetry by his headmaster. With its treasure trove of foundational figures and legendary heroes, perhaps this was Gavrilo's first brush with the extraordinary, no doubt giving him the incentive to aspire to their greatness, and perhaps become a national icon in his own right. Just four years later, at the age of 13, he moved to the capital city of Sarajevo, where his elder brother, Jovan, lived. Jovan intended to enroll the boy in the Austro-Hungarian military academy there, but was advised against it by a shopkeeper, so that Gavrilo wouldn't become, quote, an executioner of his own people, unquote. This statement, Princip later recalled, remained lodged in his impressionable mind, and stuck with him for several years. Instead, he was sent to the merchant's school, where his tuition was paid for by Jovan's earnings from various manual labor jobs. After three years there, Gavrilo transferred to the Sarajevo Gymnasium. For those of my listeners who, like me, live outside of Europe, a gymnasium isn't a place where gym bros go to get swole, but is instead an institution of learning that prepares students for higher education at a university. It's the equivalent of preparatory, or prep schools here in the United States and Canada. While it's difficult to pinpoint an exact instance as to when Princi became radicalized, it's unanimously agreed by scholars that his exposure to various political ideologies and schools of thought while attending the Sarajevo Gymnasium helped shape the man he was to become. In 1908, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina, and with it naturally came a rise in nationalistic fervor, as well as a desire for independence among her populace. As is often the case with revolutions, it was the youth and student movements that emerged and mobilized first, adhering to a wide variety of ideologies du jour such as nihilism and anti-imperialism. Of course, Princip was swept up in this figurative tidal wave of thought, too, having first been exposed to anarchist, communist, and even socialist writings by his roommate at the school, Danilo Ilich. As such, Princip began associating himself with other like-minded youth of the time, including nationalist revolutionaries who had attempted, some successfully, some not, to carry out their own plots against high-profile Austro-Hungarian officials. One such figure he admired was Bogdan Zerajic, himself a Bosnian Serb who had attempted to assassinate the Austro-Hungarian governor of Bosnia and Herzegovina before taking his own life. Elevated upon his death to the ranks of the romantic embodiment of Bosnian nationalism, Zerajic became the ultimate symbol of self-sacrifice to which many in the youth movements wished to aspire. On June 15, 1911, the one-year anniversary of his passing, an astounding number of Serb youths visited his gravesite to pay their respects, including Princip. It was here, while laying flowers at Zerajic's headstone, that the young man vowed to carry out his own attack on an Austro-Hungarian official, no matter the cost. That same year, upon graduating from the fourth grade at the Sarajevo Gymnasium, Princip joined Young Bosnia, a youth movement whose members were comprised of each of the country's three main ethnic groups, Bosniaks, Croats, and Serbs. Their goal was to liberate the country from the tyranny of Austro-Hungarian rule and establish a free and independent nation that would unite the southern Slavs of the region under a single banner.
as local authorities had placed bans on student-led organizations and clubs following Zhedayich's assassination attempt, young Bosnia was forced to meet in secret. Meetings comprised of particularly animated, if heated, debates on the latest politics and literature, and also mobilized its members into swift action. Their debut on the geopolitical stage of the time, which in turn would also prove to be Princip's first brush with civil disobedience, took place on February 18, 1912, when one member, a Croat student named Luka Jukic, organized an anti-government demonstration in the heart of the capital. When a Hungarian flag was burned in protest, the police, who had gathered in an attempt at shutting the event down, leapt into action. With clubs and the blunt end of swords drawn, they struck at any students they could get their hands on, including Princip, who suffered a bump on the head as well as having his clothes torn in the scuffle. The following day, a general strike was declared by young Bosnia, in which Serbs, Croats, and even Muslim Slavs banded together to resist the authorities. Princip himself returned to the gymnasium in an attempt at mobilizing his fellow students to the cause, garnering him an expulsion from the school. With no other educational prospects in Sarajevo, the boy fled to Belgrade, the capital of neighboring Serbia, on foot, a journey of some 170 miles, 280 kilometers. As he left without telling his brother, Jovan, he lived hand-to-mouth in virtual poverty with other Bosnian student escapees. An attempt at taking the fifth-grade exam at First Belgrade Gymnasium proved in vain, leaving him with even fewer options than before. Desperate, he decided to volunteer with the Komite, irregular units of the Serbian army. In October of 1912, war had broken out between the Balkan states and the Ottoman Empire, and young men were needed to keep the Turks at bay. But he was rejected after visiting not one, but two different recruitment offices in Belgrade for his, quote, small build, frailty, and being too weak, unquote. Furious and humiliated, he ultimately returned to Sarajevo and watched from the proverbial sidelines as the Serbian army launched several successful campaigns against Ottoman forces. Luckily, however, history would offer the break Princip was looking for when on May 2, 1913, the Austro-Hungarian governor of Bosnia and Herzegovina, one General Oskar Potiorek, in response to the Serbian army's advance, declared a nationwide state of emergency and soon implemented martial law. Under this tyrannical order, the government seized control of all learning institutions and placed a ban on all cultural, educational, and public clubs and societies, primarily those led by Serbs. Despite this precarious situation, Princip advanced to the 5th and 6th grades of high school, but departed for Belgrade yet again in the early days of 1914. While there, a friend and fellow Bosnian escapee, Nedeliko Chabrinovic, the very same grenade thrower from the opening of the episode, showed him a newspaper clipping that told of the Austro-Hungarian Archduke's proposed visit to Sarajevo that June. Fired by this news, Princip hastily organized a band of assassins whose job it would be to take down the Archduke and even Governor Potiorek. The motley crew initially consisted of Princip and Chabrinovic, as well as their old school chum, Trifko Grabež. A Bosnian Muslim friend, Dulaga Bukovac, was employed to gain weapons for the plot. Through Bukovac, the three were introduced to Milan Tsiganovic, a fellow Bosnian expatriate as well as a member of the Black Hand, a clandestine Serbian ultranationalist organization that had been responsible for several cases of political intrigue throughout the Balkans. Tsiganovic, in turn, sought the aid of his former commanding officer and fellow Black Hand member, Major Vojislav Tankosic, in procuring weapons. On May 27th that same year, Tankosic delivered the goods, which consisted of five Browning pistols, six grenades, a number of small bombs, revolvers, and several vials of poison. Whisking off into the Topchider forest just outside of Belgrade city center, the group spent the day training, under the authority and expertise of Tsiganovic, on how to use their newly acquired weapons. Of the lot, Princi proved to be the best marksman, and was thus armed with one of the Browning pistols. A day later, on the morning of May 28th, 
Princip, Shabrinovic, and Bukovac departed via riverboat for Shabats, a town along the Serbian-Bosnian border, at which time they split up to cross into Bosnia and Herzegovina separately. Between them, they carried a total of six bombs, several revolvers complete with rounds of ammunition, and three bottles of cyanide should the plan go south. Indeed, they were in it for the long haul now. There was no turning back. Before departing from Serbia, Princip had sent a letter ahead to his former school roommate, Danilo Ilic, in the hopes that the latter could gather up even further support in order to carry out the plot. By the time the trio had arrived back in Sarajevo, Ilic had managed to dig up three more recruits, Mohamed Mehmed Basic, a Bosnian Muslim carpenter, and two Bosnian Serb students, Cvetko Popovic and Vaso Chubrilovic, aged 18 and 17 respectively. In the days leading up to the Archduke's arrival, the group fully planned out their attack. They would be strategically placed along the Apel Kwai, right in the heart of the city, and each would strike when the motorcade passed. As we already know, Mehmed Basic ultimately chickened out, leaving Chabrinovic no choice but to use one of his grenades, which detonated under the fourth car in line. Watching frustratedly as the rest of the motorcade sped off and Chabrinovic being taken into custody, all eyes on the group now fell to Princip. But the subject of today's episode was determined not to miss his chance, and, as Franz Ferdinand and his wife, the Archduchess Sophia, were passing the very same delicatessen where the young Serb had been situated, he stepped forward through the crowd and fired twice into the car, killing the pair. Before he could shoot a third time, local authorities had wrestled him to the ground and taken his pistol away. Somehow, in the tussle, Princip managed to swallow a cyanide pill, but it failed to kill him. Thus, he was taken into custody, where he awaited his trial, which began on October 12th that same year. While on the stand, he expressed his regret at having killed the Archduchess, as she had never been one of the intended targets, but was quick to explain that he hadn't had the chance to kill Governor Potiorek. Despite this bit of remorse, he remained proud of what he'd done, as his words to the jury made perfectly clear. I am a Yugoslav nationalist, he said, aiming for the unification of all Yugoslavs, and I do not care what form of state, but it must be free from Austria. The plan was to unite all South Slavs. In my opinion, every Serb, Croat, and Slovene should be an enemy of Austria. In all, 25 people from both Young Bosnia and the Black Hand, including Princip, were charged with conspiracy, high treason, and murder. Under Austro-Hungarian law, however, the six assassins could not be put to death, as they had all been under the age of 20 at the time of the plot. Instead, they were given prison sentences of various lengths, with Princip himself sentenced to 20 years at Terezin, a military prison in northern Bohemia, what's now the Czech Republic. He'd never leave the facility alive. Shortly after his arrival at Terezin, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. The disease would slowly and painfully eat away at his bones, so much so that his right arm ultimately had to be amputated. As if that weren't enough, he was kept under solitary confinement within a tiny cell where he was chained to a wall. So hellish were the conditions there, and so plagued was he by consumption that, in January of 1916, he tried to take his own life by hanging himself with a towel. This proved unsuccessful. Finally, just three and a half years into serving his time, he passed away on April 28, 1918. He was just 23 years old. So weakened was he at the time of his death from malnutrition and the disease that he weighed just 88 pounds, 40 kilograms. Fearing that Serbian nationalists would come searching for his body, the prison guards buried him in an unmarked grave. However, one of them, a former Czech soldier, remembered the location and, in 1920, turned the remains over to Yugoslavian authorities to be buried at the Vidovdan Heroes Chapel within the Holy Archangel Cemetery in Sarajevo. As to be expected, Gavrilo Princip remains a polarizing figure to this day. 
Though there's no questioning the historic significance of his legacy, there are still strong opinions of him depending upon who you ask. Though the Austro-Hungarian Empire is no more, a vast majority of Austrians and Hungarians right up to the present revile him as nothing more than a terrorist, an extremist who murdered in cold blood one of the more beloved of their national figures, in the form of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. On the opposite side of the spectrum, Serbs see him as a national hero, while the Bosniaks and Croats have made a complete 180 and pass him off as a criminal conspirator. No matter the stance one takes, it's clear that he wasn't just a key figure in the history and development of the Great War, but one of the most significant figures of the 20th century. Thanks for listening. I do so hope you enjoyed this intriguing episode about one of the most notorious figures of 20th century history. Princip's actions can still be felt all the way up to the present, particularly in that particular corner of Europe. Proof positive that, as the American writer William Faulkner once famously said, the past is not dead, it isn't even past. If you like what you hear with my podcast and wish to support me to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit any budget. Listening and sharing also help immensely, so please do so on all podcast slash streaming platforms. Join me again next week for another informative episode right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time. Thank you.